Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, host Timothy Baldridge talks with Nada Amin, but we do have a few announcements before we get started. The CFP for Closure Conj 2017 is still open, so this is your chance to join Guy Steele and Rich Hickey as we celebrate Closure's 10th anniversary. Head on over to 2017.closure-conj.org/speakers for more information. Also, the Triangle Closure User Group is meeting Thursday, July 27th at 7 p.m. Head on over to meetup.com slash tri, it's T-R-I, closure, so T-R-I-C-L-O-J-U-R-E, for more information. Sadly, there's no Closure Bridge events on the horizon at the moment. Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. So if that sounds like a good idea and something you want to be involved in, head on over to closurebridge.org slash pound sign get dash involved and see how you can help out. If you have a closure-related event you would like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast.cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on to Timothy Baldridge and Nada Amin and episode 129 of the CogniCast. Three, two, one. Welcome, everyone. Today is July 12, 2017, and this is the CogniCast. I'm Timothy Baldridge, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Nada Amin to the show today. Thanks for being with us, Nada. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Excellent. So, uh, as we were just discussing, uh, when we start the show, I like to ask people for an experience of art. Could be a good experience, bad experience, and we're not even going to define art for you, just what your personal view of art is and some experience you've had. So so what do you have for us today? Well, I guess it's, uh, for me, the it's maybe the, the, the most common experience of art is just uh, reading good literature. Mm, so yes. an example is, uh, I mean, since I was, uh, since... Before I even started university, I, I, I read um, In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. And for me, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's one experience of art where just by reading what someone else writes, I feel like I can, I can get into his perspective or his way of thinking or his way of seeing the world. And I mean, I guess for me, literature is, is uh, in general, is one way to just uh, experience other other points of view, and, and this is one book that I like in particular, or one, I mean, it's not just one book, it's many books, but uh, like one um, one piece of art that I like in particular. Excellent. Yeah, it's, uh, literature is something that I haven't done as much of reading as, as I would love to, but uh, uh, for sure, uh, that's, it's a great way of even seeing life in different points of time, different perspectives, and uh, and yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I, I think back to one time I read a book years ago on the uh, the American Revolution, but from the point of view of the British, and, and I had the same sort of experience of realizing that, wow, everything I've learned my whole life 
can be viewed much differently from a different point of view. <laughs> yeah. That's excellent. So um, in a few short weeks, uh, you're going to be giving a talk at Euroclosure called Generative Programming and Verification. Now, I have an abstract here, but I, I'd like to kind of hear it from your point of view. And this, this talk will be airing uh, for our listeners out there. We will be airing this talk after it occurs. So by the time you hear this, you should be able to see the talk on YouTube. But uh, we wanted to talk about it a little bit first. So, so what are you going to be discussing in this talk? Yeah, so th this talk will, will be about um, my my research, and it's it's joint work with Tiacoms on on generative programming and verification. So it's mainly something we've done in the, um, using Scala, but hopefully some of the ideas are more general, and I can I, I will be able to um, to connect with the closure audience as well. I mean, we've done some some simple experiments in uh, in, in Scheme as well, and. And so I think it, it might it might as well fit uh, the closure audience. So the the idea of this talk is is to give um, a principled way of generating programs. So you, you 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 generate programs that generate programs, and you have a way to to think about these things in a principled way. And what what this gives you, for example, is um, almost a recipe to turn an interpreter into a compiler. And in the context of Scala, we can do this just by changing the types. Oh, fascinating. So that's one, one example. Yeah. So, so does this sort of thing require a type system then, or is, is that more of a, a point of leverage? I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with something like spec and closure, but could any sort of specification system be used with this? Uh, so, uh, I mean, yeah, so I'm not too familiar with spec. I've, uh, I've, uh, I've seen it from afar, and it looks, uh, it looks very interesting. Uh, it, it is definitely a leverage in the, in the context of Scala. So what we're doing is that we're using... Uh, Scala's type system uh, to basically indicate whether something um, will be generating code or whether it's to be evaluated straight away. But there are many other ways you can do this. So, for example, in the, in the OCaml community or the, or the ML community in general, they do this by using quotations and anti-quotations explicitly. But what's, what's interesting in the, in, the, in the Scala world is that by, by leveraging the type system, we are, we're, we're able to exploit, say, the local type inference of Scala to do this sort of binding time analysis for us, uh, binding time analysis from the partial evaluation literature, which means that you basically propagate what is code versus what is uh, to be evaluated straight away within, within um, a function body. So that's very convenient in, in, this, in this setting. But you can also do it just uh, much more explicitly uh, with um, quotations or just with... Uh, you know, with extra syntax in general. Right, right. So, so you're saying like in a, in a language like Scheme or a Lisp in general, you may quote the expression to say this is, well, actually say it's just data, right? It, uh, there's no way of saying it's, it's code explicitly, uh, but that requires an explicit uh, yeah, so notation. Example, and, uh, we, we, we did a little like Scheme, uh, like say a little um, a system in Scheme that is basically able to generate code or or just evaluate things straight away. And there, indeed, we use, uh, say, these code tags, for example, to indicate that, that things are, are code. So it's, uh, it can be very basic. It doesn't have to be uh, uh, f fancy. What, what the type system gives you is also a sort of guarantee in terms of, uh, like, if you're, if you're going to be doing optimizations on these code fragments, then at least you know that uh, they're sort of opaque and the optimizations you do are like don't, don't affect the, the meaning of the... Basically, that, that you can treat them opaquely uh, and then do optimizations 
by opening them up. So for example, if you have a plus node, then you know that plus zero is something you can just uh, remove and things like this. But so the, the type system gives you some guarantees in terms of um, uh, where you can do optimizations and whether they will they would semantically affect the answer. But you can use many other systems. So I'm not sure how much in my talk, how much, um, uh, how much of the scheme system I'll go into. I mean, this is something uh, we built in a different, in a slightly different context, where, where we were trying to use um, the basic ideas from this talk, so the basic ideas from generative programming to collapse towers of interpreters, kind of like uh, in the in the strange loop talk on programming Shadit itself. I was presenting uh, Kenichi SI's um, black system, which allows you to have this infinite towers of interpreter. Now the question is, if you modify something in the tower. And let's say you want to generate code for, for the user level. Uh, can you do this on the fly? And so by using these generative techniques, we also found a, a principled way of sort of collapsing these towers of interpreters and basically generating uh, tight code for the user level, regardless of how many uh, modifications you have in the tower. And this we can do in both Scheme and, and Scala. Yeah, excellent. So, so when we say the generative programming, is it then you're you're taking these lists of of expressions, and then you, you have generic optimization paths, or or how do we get from? And this is going to be hard to talk about, isn't it, without actual code for anyone to see? But but how do we get from expressions and these this type information to generating? Uh, I guess generating code from that. I mean, is it, is it just a simple compiler you could do there, or is it something more complex? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So one way to think about it is when um, is that this is really multi-stage programming. So when your when your um, code generator runs, it really runs with the full power of the host language, so be it Scala or Scheme. Mm -hmm. And while it's running, it's generating, it's putting these code fragments together. And in the case of of, uh, of this framework that we're using, uh, lightweight modular staging, what it's doing is that it's it's building an intermediate representation while it's running in the first stage. And then this intermediate representation, you can generate code from it. But basically, you can think of it as being built as a side effect of running in the first stage. So if you, so just to be more concrete, say you have a plus node and it's operating on, on, on pure numbers, then you know that you can just do this addition during the first stage. But if you have this plus node and it's operating on these code fragments, then you know that you have to create a plus node in your intermediate representation. And so what this gives you is that you have the full power of the host language to piece together these code fragments uh, during the first stage. Interesting. So this this reminds me then of uh, some work I've done with the PyPy platform, which works on a sort of a tracing JIT. But it sounds like this operate, and the idea was behind that system that you can you can write an interpreter, make a few annotations, which are essentially type annotations, and the system then generates a, a JIT for you. Um, and it sounds like this is a lot of the same sort of thing, but maybe in the user space of the code, that I could do this for DSLs and, and that sort of thing. But is that that's really what's happening is we're just kind of tracing the execution of the program and then using the trace to to optimize yeah so that's a that's I, I think that's a fair analogy analogy it's but it's it's in some sense yes I mean you're uh, instead of generating a trace uh, you're you're generating the second stage program as a as an intermediate representation so you're you're actually executing the the first stage and and generating code for the second stage 
Okay, excellent. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, the, um, yeah, the I, I played with PyPy a little bit. I was I was trying to collapse those towers of interpreters yes. with PyPy. And what was funny then is that actually PyPy has all this facility to to collapse, say, one interpreter loop. But with with the tower, it it wouldn't it wouldn't actually work because it would uh, uh, somehow I was violating the internal invariance of like that the loops these loops are supposed to be static or something, and it was. Uh, they were, yeah, they were. The, I was generating these loops dynamically from the tower, so it wasn't, it wasn't quite working. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a, it is definitely a complicated process that I don't fully understand either. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about towers and interpreters, and I was planning on hitting this a little bit later on, but it sounds like it's tied in with this talk, so, so we should do that perhaps now. So you did a talk at Strange Loop in twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. 14. Yeah. 14, okay. Uh, about towers of interpreters, um, what's the general gist there? Because it sounds like that's kind of the foundation for for what you're going to be talking about in a few weeks. Yes, I, yes I, I'm not sure yet how much of, uh, of towers of interpreters I will bring into my talk. I, I think probably it's, it would be relevant for a closure audience to, to, look, I mean, to, to mention it. So, the, I mean, the gist of towers of interpreters is that you... It's kind of the, the ultimate way to have a, a very flexible semantics for your language. So you can think of the user language being interpreted by some, some meta-interpreter, and then this meta-interpreter itself is interpreted by a meta-meta-interpreter, and so on. And you can, you can go up as many levels as you want, uh, infinitely many levels as you want. So this gives you an extremely f uh, flexible way of, of changing the semantics by changing the semantics at any level. And I mean, so far it's true that the, um, the, the kind of things people do in that setting, it's mostly for introspection and debugging. So by tracing things at the, at the meta interpreter level, you can, you can um, basically the, uh, debug your, your programs in some ways. But it, it, I, I think it's just also intellectually interesting to see the, these uh, these towers uh, and and sort of think okay if I change my meta meta level what what really happens to my user program and things like this exactly so from what I understand these these meta interpreters then are kind of lazy create lazily created they don't they, they exist theoretically but telling in, in the current environment you can say okay pop up a level into the meta interpreter above me so to speak or below however we want to look at the stack are there um, <laughs> And then it kind of lazily will create the state that exists there, and yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, So exactly. the the idea is that you can you can think of um, you can think of each each level having its own environment, its own continuation, and all that. And you have a stream of these meta environments and meta continuation, and you can go up or down as as much as you want, but. In effect, when you when you want to execute the tower, once you reach a level where there are no modifications, you can fall back to the to the default semantics to the metal, and this is how you you can actually eventually execute even seemingly infinite towers. Right, and and so the idea is then you could pop up a level into the interpreter and redefine eval, let's say, to produce new information, uh, either tracing or or something along these lines, and then. Uh, and then go back down to where the you originally were executing code and get the benefit of whatever changes you made in the other level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And so yeah, so you were saying that I mean this is this is the kind of interesting the thing I'm kind of interested in. So you you were saying then obviously debugging. Uh, I mean we've seen this in 
in various other platforms being able to kind of pop up one level and you can kind of debug there but but what are some other theoretical uses of this of this sort of thing i mean i find it fascinating and optimization and debugging are kind of the two things i've come up with are, are, is there anything else you've run across yes i i think it, it is more of a uh kind of a, a good um like say Kenichi SI, for example, has been using these towers to explore ideas in partial evaluation and things like this. So it is kind of like a good uh, benchmark for a lot of of techniques, right? If if can it can it run on the tower? Like can it can it do things on the tower? So we've been using it to see if we can collapse towers of interpreters, and that's a good benchmark for okay in the wild. Can we collapse like uh, towers of interpreters in the wild? Which which happen like say if you have. Um, a virtual machine in the browser running JavaScript, running a little language, which runs, I don't know, like, which runs a little DSL of its own, like, say, a regular expression match or something. Can you can you really collapse all this into just, uh, like, running the, the DSL on the on the bare metal uh, virtual machine, for example? Yeah, so yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah, so for us, we, we've been exploring it in that sense. Now, in terms of what, what you can, what more you can do with towers, I mean... Uh, when I when I asked uh, Kenichi this question, he he said himself that he's not sure it has uh, too many practical uses. But from a from a theoretical point of view, I think the the semantics of the tower is, uh, is interesting. Like in terms of uh, just playing with reflection and uh, reification and things like this, and uh, also how do you give uh, an actual semantics to this whole tower? So there there, there were a series of papers about about doing this. Uh, in our case, when we do when we do our work on, on on collapsing towers of interpreters, we kind of change the semantics a little bit to to suit computation better. So, for example, instead of each level having its own continuation or own CPU, if you want, we have one CPU for the whole tower. So that changes the semantics a little bit and, and things like this. But I I think in terms of use cases, it's more it's more like the the fun of playing with it and 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 it's kind of a little bit uh, mind bending. But I'm I'm I don't think we're there yet with any practical escape. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating stuff. I, I ran into your talk. Well, I had heard about it on and off, and then I watched it last week uh, in preparation for our our, um, our talk today. And that led me into some papers and playing around with code. And, and yeah, I've spent more than a few hours just digging into this stuff. And it's, it's great. It's it's cool compiler stuff. And, and you never know when it will actually show up in something that could be used in the real world, so to speak. But I, I guess, I guess, so um, we didn't. We, we kind of introduced you by name, but not necessarily by occupation or anything like that. So, so you work with in academia space. Um, you know, uh, where where are you working, and what what do you do? Yeah, so I I, uh, I finished my PhD at EPFL. I was working uh, in the Scala team with Martin Odersky. and then so I finished in uh, in December, and then I've been. I've been traveling a little bit to find my permanent position, which I will start uh, this fall. Uh, so I will start as a lecturer at the University of Cambridge. Excellent. And in, and in between, I'm I'm doing various things. So right now, I'm in I'm in um, Germany visiting uh, TU Darmstadt uh, and and working with uh, Mira Mazzini, Mazzini and some of her students on on like programming languages, things related to reactive programming and also really related to modularity and dependent classes and things like this. So trying to apply some of my PhD work. Uh, so my PhD work was uh, on foundations of Scala. Hmm. So uh, coming with a, a core calculus that, that captures some of the 
important aspects of the of the type system. And this core calculus is called DOT, which stands for dependent object types. And uh, Martin Odersky and others in the team have been using it as the as the core foundation for the for the type system in the new uh, Scala compiler called DOTI. Excellent. So I've heard the name Dottie thrown around, and I, I was aware that they're kind of working on a, a new compiler. Uh, what, what's kind of the, the main thrust of what they're trying to achieve, uh, or I guess you are trying to achieve? With it? So in, in my case, working on the type system, the main, the main thrust was uh, to try to simplify things. So to have a, a stronger foundation where we, we actually, I mean, on paper, we have proved uh, good properties for the type system, like soundness. And uh, and then the the compiler itself was uh, Martin's um, like idea of a, of a clean slate. So to to start uh, to to start a compiler for Scala from scratch and uh, kind of even use uh, you know some patterns that are more functional in terms of how the compiler works. Uh, so I haven't been too involved with the hands-on implementation of the compiler, but I mean the the gist of it was really to 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 have the, the the compiler be based on the theory, and also uh, introduce uh, progressively introduce some new features like um, implicit function types is one of them, and, and there are others as well. But I think uh, the the first goal is to reach is really to reach uh, parity with the with the current Scala compiler, and and while at the same time uh, internally having made all these simplifications uh, to the type system and so on. Interesting, yeah. And so, so when you say simplification to the type system, what are we, what are we kind of talking about there? What, what is, what is the friction that that's experienced? I assume that it's something that an average user would experience. I, I have not done really any Scala programming at all. But. I guess it's mostly related to the to the concepts in the in the type system. So right now there there are in terms of Scala concept there there are a lot of concepts that are not quite orthogonal. And I think Martin gave a talk. At a Strange Loop in um, 2013, where he he talks a little bit about this. So, for example, there are some types that come from the functional side, and some types that come from the say modular or object-oriented side, and they're they're not quite orthogonal. So, one thing is, uh, you, uh, for example, in the current Scala compiler, you have like existential types, higher kind of types, and and and, and so on. And on the other side, you have um, well, path-dependent types, name types, and things like this. So there's a lot of a lot of types to choose from, and it, it just feels a little bit complicated. So in, ter- in terms of the foundations, what we did is make everything based on these uh, path-dependent types. So these ideas that this idea that your objects can have type members as well as methods and uh, and ob- and fields. And, and because they have type members, you have a way to refer to them. So these, that gives you these dependent types where you have, say, an object O dot L, where L is a type. Mm. And, and then basically everything is based on, on this foundation. So you take these path dependent types and you add like intersection types and union types. And these are, these are kind of new in that they behave more, more nicely than the compound ty- types that were there before. So I'm not sure if this makes too much sense to... Uh, for the closure uh, people here, but, but basically the idea was to to try to have a foundation based on, on these path-dependent types, and this has been working fairly well, except for higher kind of types. Uh, this is one space where uh, I think we would want to do more theory to to include them in the um, 
in the base foundation because through encodings it, uh, it didn't work quite well. And I think Martin has a paper uh, at the Scala Symposium um, uh, last year where, where he explains why the, the encodings were, were difficult. Interesting. Yeah. So when we're talking about these these path dependent types, and if I'm not mistaken, that's that's the part that came from your your papers, right? Yeah, I worked on the on the core theory for these for these path dependent types. Yeah. Okay, so so we have a class, and we have a type that's a member of the class. It sounds like what 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 are the implications of like how does that actually work out? As I'm I'm gonna make a horrible analogy or a comparison, like how does that differ from just a nested class that you know has a little bit more of the name on it? Yeah. What, so, what's going on here? Okay, so these, so in some sense, okay, you can write a class which has a type member, but really this type member only has, I mean, it, it's really tied to an object, right? So if you have an object of this class, then it has this type member, and so the. In some sense, the, the type member is virtual in the same sense that, you know, a method is virtual. You have virtual right. dispatch on this on this um, on this method where you have virtual dispatch on this type member. So usually for nested classes, say in, in Java, you wouldn't have virtual dispatch. You would have this sort of static dispatch. Right. Yeah. And then I mean, and then there's this concept of virtual classes where you can have virtual dispatch. But the way to think about these type members is really that they're they are sort of uh, virtual in that sense. Interesting. And so, so saying uh, an object foo dot my type on that could be a completely different type depending on what the uh, instance of foo refers to in, in that case. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I guess you would have. Um, I mean, you would have a subtyping relationship between these things. So the way the way it works is that. When you declare one of these type members, you give it a lower bound type and an upper bound type. As you get in, down into the subtyping hierarchy, these types can become more and more precise. So the, the lower bound and the upper bound become tighter. And then you can even get uh, to an alias where, where that means you know exactly what the type is. And in a, in a, in a bad situation, you can, get, you can have a, a type which has bad bounds. That means that it doesn't make any sense. I mean, basically, bottom like it, it would. Hopefully, it would be like an object which has bad bounds would be uh, would not be inhabited. But yeah, that was in the theory. That was one thing that was difficult to to deal with, uh, like how to how to ensure that uh, objects with bad bounds don't cause any trouble. Right. Right. And yeah, and I guess this is related to the. Uh, soundness we uh, Ross and I found in in Scala as well. Exactly. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that lead, that's a perfect segue into the next thing I want to talk about. So you um, published a paper called uh, well, actually I didn't write down the name here. It was about unsound types in Scala and Java. What? Uh, first yeah. of all, we should probably define because I hear the word you know I hear unsound types thrown around, but never really heard it defined until recently. What are unsound types? Okay, so in, in general, it's uh, when we talk about unsoundness, it's about a type system, right? So, so an unsound types. So in gen, okay, in general, a type system tries to 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 give some guarantees. So you know that if a if a program type checks, then certain errors are not possible at runtime. An unsound type system is one where uh, the guarantee doesn't actually hold. So you you think that you you 
you would not have a certain kind of error, but in certain situations, you actually end up having that error. And usually these errors are like, you know, simple things like, um, say, calling a method that doesn't, that doesn't exist on an object. I mean, usually uh, it shouldn't be possible to do this in, in Java, for example, or in Scala. Excellent. So, so you wrote a paper on some findings that you found in Java and Scala. Uh, what, what did you find? Uh, so we found that, um, I mean, we found that that both Scala and Java have um, uh, have unsound type systems in, in in exactly the sense that some um, errors are possible at runtime. In particular, you know, by by writing a program that doesn't explicitly use uh, downcasting, we were able to to cast, say, an int to a string or or any type to any other type. And uh, th this, this problem we first found in, in Scala. And uh, I mean, in some sense in Scala, it wasn't too surprising because um, there, there are some other related bugs like this. I mean, we, we didn't, uh, be, because there are some, some ad hoc checks in the, in the compiler. And then uh, Ross actually managed to, uh, to find a similar issue in, um, in Java. Uh, inspired by the the problem in Scala, and this was much more surprising because uh, Java doesn't even have path dependent types. And initially, the issue was with path dependent types. Uh, but ju just to to give um, a quick idea of how this works, so in in the context of Scala, the way you get the bug is simply by uh, creating one of those objects that has that has bad types, and in gen generally. Um, you wouldn't be able to create an inhabitant of that object, but by by passing in just null as a value, you can actually trivially create uh, an inhabitant. Mm. So so using null is a uh, is crucial is crucial to create this bug. And then in the context of uh, of Java, what happens is that you can use the Java f features to to kind of have these implicit constraints on. Um, on like implicit subtyping constraints, and basically also by passing null there, you create uh, a constraint that doesn't that doesn't hold uh, in practice, but you can you can actually uh, get it accepted by the type system. So so it's accepted by the type system and it passes, and it sounds like the the outcome of that is you would have a program that would type check, but yet would throw a null pointer exception. Is that is that kind of what we're hitting here? No, no. So it's, yeah, it type checks and then it shows an exception. Uh, but it surprisingly it shows. Um, I mean, it shows a say a class cast exception. So mm. it, it says it says for example, I I couldn't cast uh, int to string. And and so um, in fact, it's it's lucky that the Java virtual machine checks at runtime whether these casts are valid or not, regardless of what the type. The type system said it was valid, but the Java virtual ma machine double checks, and that's fortunate. Otherwise, it could be a, it would have been a much much more serious issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's interesting that uh, if you if you dig into the JVM, it, it really is a very dynamic virtual machine in the sense that it doesn't really know that much about types at all, except int string class of this, and and yeah. So as you said, converting you can try to convert it into a string, and it will compile and run and then crash when you try to execute the code. <laughs> um, so the question is, would you hit this sort of bug in 
quote-unquote normal work? Is is this something where is it like just a bug in the compiler, or is it is it really something that uh, could affect uh, a fair amount of people? So I mean, so it's true that the the examples seem uh, a bit contrived, but one thing though is that in some sense it's surprising that uh, you know you're not using any doubt like. In some sense, it's it's a little bit it's it's uh, it's a little bit frightening that you you're not using certain bad features yet you get like the some some bad right so you're in some sense you it, it's it's removing your ability to reason about about what your code will do uh, if you have this, this sort of unsoundness. I don't know how how um, I don't really think that in practice uh, uh, these are too big an issue though. One thing to point out is that you can. Even without using null, you can create a similar sort of uh, issue because null is kind of implicitly used when you um, when you initialize fields, for example, during during field initialization. So then this is even more disturbing because you haven't used null, you haven't used downcast, and you and you can yet still end up having a similar issue. And we, I, I mean, we also have examples of this um, in some. Uh, code accompanying the paper so so i would say i i don't think that in in practice it's uh like people have been really bitten by this but i think it it matters in terms of um sort of uh, how confident you feel about your code uh, if uh, like if you go through all this trouble to making sure that okay type checks you can reason about it and yet you still don't have strong guarantees about whether it, it, it's sound or not yeah, yeah and it, it, it is one of those things of a it's a trade-off right it's it's a if i need to make sure my code is 100 percent not going to have the specific error um i better be pretty sure about the the type system yeah. I, I don't think a lot of us write a lot of code that we have to be that sure about and so you know maybe these maybe these type systems then provide uh, a good enough benefit in, in those cases you know That's but true. i mean ross also has a has a blog post uh where he, he he gives his opinion on this on this question, uh, I think it's it's yeah. I mean it it will maybe we yeah we can give them. Well, well, uh, yeah, we shall. We'll try to put a link in the uh, in the notes that we post with this uh, Cognicast that links mm-hmm. to that uh, blog post. So you, you've done a lot of work with compilers. Uh, you, you've done some work on CoreLogic, Scala compiler. Apparently, some with Google Closure, the Google Closure compiler as well, and a lot of Scheme. So what what is it about type systems and compilers that that keeps you coming back? Uh, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. I I guess I just I, I think it's fun. I mean, I I like um, yeah. I, I find it uh, I find it fun that you can you know that 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 um, in some sense there is no magic behind the language, right? You. you or, or behind why a language is a certain way, you can you can really play with the semantics of uh, of the languages you're using, right? And I guess there's a quote in, in SIGP that I that I really like, you know, that just says, uh, uh, "Wait, where is it?" So yeah, that your your like the the programming language you're using is really just another another program that you can you can tinker with and all that. And so, yeah, I think that's that's why I that's why I enjoy it. It's, it's just it's just a way for me to to kind of um, uh, th- think about the 
the tools I'm using and 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 why I mean or or, or think about new ways of exploring programming as well. So, for example, in the case of CoreLogic, I was really kind of uh, playing with um, uh, how how to best represent semantics of programming language, and I came across this nominal logic, and, and this is why I ended up implementing it in, in CoreLogic and try to have one system where you can really think about uh, the semantics of your of your languages. So, in general, I think I just end up uh, getting attracted to compilers and to and to programming languages just because it's a uh, it's it's like a, a way to really explore new ways of programming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's I dabbled have dabbled a lot in in, in compilers and interpreters and stuff through the years, and it, it's a lot of the same sort of thing with me. A, a fun experiment that a friend of mine, uh, Brandon Bloom, some people may know him in the closure community. He and I enjoy doing is sitting down and saying, "What would happen if we reified this part of the interpreter?" So so that you're you're kind of multiple levels of interpreter it could be viewed in a way of reifying or making concrete the interpreter above you you know that's normally something you can't touch what if we could touch it um, other languages like f eff um, reifies the call stack in a sense and says hey what if, we, what if we could take a chunk of the call stack not the whole thing but just part of it and move it around and treat it as an object and and yeah that sort of stuff is is it is fascinating it's a way of uh, even if even if there's maybe not a uh, a ton of, uh, I hate the word practical use for this, but I'm going to say it, you know, maybe, maybe it's not apparent today what the practical use is. Maybe, maybe there will be tomorrow. So it's yeah. fascinating. Excellent. So as someone who has worked primarily in dynamic languages recently, the thing I have to ask is how, how do how do you deal? This is going to sound a little aggressive. I don't mean it that way. How, how do you deal with going back and forth between like Scala, which is the, the, you know, extremely, statically typed to to scheme uh which is a hundred percent the opposite i mean I, do, you, do you view them equally or is it, is it as as both tools i guess or uh is it's just another way of looking at the world or? I, so to me i it's funny but i like i like using dynamic languages like scheme or closure when i when i really don't know what i'm doing and i'm sort of just exploring and i want to you know, in some sense, I, I, it gives me total freedom to just really explore from a, almost from a blank slate what I want to do. And then in that scenario, I find that uh, uh, types uh, maybe get in the way of, of my explorations. But then if, if I'm, even if I'm building something like a, a, little, a little interpreter or a little compiler and I, I kind of know where I'm going and I know what I want to do, then I find the types really useful because they, they really just help me, you know, catch, uh, catch simple mistakes early and, and, and more quickly get to the results. So, for example, I mean, even in this project where we, where we were doing these collapsing towers of interpreters, I did it in, we did it in Scala first, and then we did a scheme version. And the scheme version was more, more painful to do because we, I mean, it was, uh, it was harder to, like, you know, you, you can make a simple mistake and you don't catch it until 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 the until the runtime. And depending on which scheme interpreter you use, it might be really hard to trace back where where the mistake uh, happened and all that. Oh, absolutely. So I, I like using typed languages like like Scala or Camel when when I'm sort of um, where where when the challenge is in my domain, so to speak, as opposed to uh, in the in the linguistic abstractions themselves. 
That, that's fascinating. And uh, yeah, and it's it, it's true. There's uh, there have been times if when I'm playing around with compilers and, and especially in Scheme, I, I have problems with Scheme. But but uh, where you kind of get to a point where it's like, well, this is this is a console, and I have no clue what it means in this context. And so <laughs> yeah, no, I can see where type systems definitely definitely help with that. Excellent. Wonderful. So um, uh, I guess one other question I have for you. So you said you're going to be uh, working at, at Cambridge and doing lectures there. Um, are you primarily working with, uh, you know, uh, more introductory concepts or are you going to be doing uh, this sort of stuff, lecturing on, on uh, compilers and meta interpreters and the like? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So I think my, my first tier is going to be pretty open. I don't think I, I've been assigned any classes yet. So, I mean, probably I, I, I might have the, the chance to do a, an advanced seminar um, next year sometime. But I, I still it's still not set in stone. So, but overall, I guess uh, during my time there, I will probably get to cheat teach um, both both classes at the um, uh, bachelor level and also at the master level and at advanced uh, advanced level se advanced seminars for for uh, phd students or advanced uh, master students so i think it will be fairly mixed excellent that sounds great i i've i'd, I'd love to to uh uh, watch watch some of those talks. I, I've I've commented to uh, people before that you know I, I don't have formal training in in software engineering, uh, and so you know a lot of my experience is from working in the industry and that sort of thing. And and uh, I've commented that back when I would have gone to college, uh, I probably couldn't comprehend half the stuff that was being taught. And now that I feel like I can, I don't have time. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's the way it goes, right? And I had one other thing I was going to ask, and it has uh, since slipped my mind. So um, I guess at this point, if is there anything else you, you would like to discuss? Any any topics, questions you have for us? No, no, nothing in nothing in particular. Okay, excellent. So towards the end of the um, the Cogcast, we do ask uh, people for some piece of advice, something to give to us uh, as uh, Cognitect or as a whole. Our, our listeners or, or something along those lines. Uh, so, so you have, do you have some advice for us today? Uh, this is, <laughs> yeah, I wish I had more time to, to think about it, to give you good advice. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my impression from the, from the closure community, like from the, from the conferences I've attended is that uh, it's a really open community where, you know, ideas from academia kind of, actually are welcomed and, and, and also used. Sometimes uh, I, I remember once talking with, with Will, uh, William Bird, and we, we were both like fascinated and, and also scared by, uh, you know, how some of the ideas from academia were just used in production uh, in, in closure. Like, I mean, we did it, say, to using core, core logic to do, um, to do some some advanced detection of, uh, of viruses and things like this. But anyway, so I don't know. So my advice is, I, I think I think this is great, and and it's great that uh, um, closure is a is a great community in terms of um, like making accessible ideas from academia, and also uh, also making accessible ideas from industry, uh, like taking taking uh, frameworks that are that are built in, in industry maybe in other languages and and by by porting them to closure making them even 
intellectually more accessible to, to a wider range of people. So I think that's great and, and the community should continue doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's that's one thing I have appreciated as well is, you know, the running joke in the closure community is that all good ideas were invented in the 70s and we've just kind of rediscovered them uh, since then. Right. Um, but, yeah, th- th- it's true with with core logic um, and and, you know, even persistent data structures and a lot of these sort of things had their basis uh, you know, years ago, decades ago. Um, and I, I don't know if it's that. I mean, are we seeing this, you think, because the hardware and the rest of the technology is kind of caught up to where these things are usable? Or or are we just exiting the OOP, the time when OOP kind of dominated everything? Or, or uh, I'm not sure. What, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either. I mean, I, I do feel that, uh, I mean, probably the, um, the, the hardware constraints help rediscover ideas, right? Some things that were invented in the 70s but were not not necessarily applicable then. Uh, today they, they're applicable. And I, I think that's a good case uh, for, you know, to do some software archaeology and some digging <laughs> to back in the past and, and bring back some ideas that, that are now uh, viable. I think it's also the same, right, with, um, with like these, say, the, the, the trend with deep, Neural networks. So yes. neural networks have been have been here since the '80s, and it's only recently that that uh, that they're working really well on a huge variety of variety of problems, right? So so probably probably it's a mix of of yeah, hardware, data problems. I I, I can't really tease it apart. <laughs> yes, I I think it's yeah, it, it it's fascinating to. I, I like it. I like I like the idea that maybe we haven't figured everything out uh, yet, and that uh, you know there is something to to offer uh, from the past. And I, I think that's to tie this all together. So I, I've noticed a trend in a lot of the things that we've talked about today. This mm-hmm. this idea of kind of uh, you know towers interpreters and and meta interpreters and that sort of thing. And uh, you know maybe maybe we'll find that it'll be cool. It'll be a neat feature for a while. And then sometime in the near future, perhaps something will pop up that just really needs this. And and, and to, to come back to generative programming, I think that that's a good example of it, perhaps. And, and something I've I've thought of as well is, you know, if I have some DSL running in my uh, in my program, uh, can I can I introspect that and generate something even lower level? Uh, and you know, I, a lot of that I think might come down to just ease of use as well. How hard is it to get to that point? How much theory is required? And and uh, hopefully you can uh, give us some insight there as well at uh, Euroclosure. Sounds good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for being uh, on the call today with us. This has been uh, fascinating. I've got a huge list of things I want to read now and and go look up. But uh, uh, it, it, it's been fantastic. Thanks for for having me. All right. Excellent. (laughs) And uh, everybody should, well, I guess it'll be too late by the time you hear this, but uh, if you haven't yet, go watch uh, Nada's Talks. There's about, uh, I don't know, three or four of them now on YouTube and stuff, and they're always fascinating, mind-blowing sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, go check them out. All right. Excellent. This has been the Cognicast, and I'm Timothy Baldridge. Thank you for listening.
You have been listening to the CogniCast. The CogniCast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technologies effectively and humanely. We're there to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Nada Amin. You can find Nada on Twitter at at Nada Amin. That's at sign N-A-D-A-M-I-N. Our host was Timothy Baldridge, who is at Tim Baldridge on Twitter. That's at sign T-I-M-B-A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Audio production is by Joe Smith, Jared Binford, and Russ Olson. Cover art is by Michael Parento. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. Yeah,